Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Well, again, good morning. If you've got a Bible, go with me to Deuteronomy chapter 5, that passage we just heard read. Deuteronomy chapter 5. In 2016, a popular Christian author and blogger named Glennon Doyle announced a separation from her husband of 14 years. Three months later, she announced that she had fallen in love with a female soccer star. Shortly after that announcement, she and the soccer star were married. In a post online informing her 600,000 online followers about all of these decisions, Doyle said this, seemingly trying to get ahead of the inevitable pushback that she would get about her decisions. She said, please don't pretend to know what God thinks of us. Please think deeply about the chasm-wide difference between leaving a man and leaving God. Please remember that when a woman leaves, she just brings God with her. She then goes on to say, we are women who have become far too wise to believe in shame. Now, I don't pretend to know much of anything about Glennon Doyle's life. I don't know hardly anything about her previous marriage, how healthy or unhealthy it was, about what they were going through at the time, or about whether they should or shouldn't have split up when they did. I I don't know much about the intricacies of her current marriage. I, I do know what the scriptures teach about marriage in general, and I know that much of this current marriage would not align with that. But other than that, I simply do not know. I don't pretend to know. But to be honest, I I am far more interested in dissecting the view of God that she set forward in that particular quote that we just read. In her words, quote, when a woman leaves, meaning her husband, she just takes God with her, end quote. Regardless of how you feel about Glennon Doyle, I would argue that that statement right there is actually fairly representative of the way that a lot of people tend to think about God. Even some self-proclaimed Christians tend to think about God. It's the, the functional belief that at the end of the day, the decisions we make, even major life altering types of decisions are of little actual concern to God, the, the specifics of them at least. The functional belief is that God is sort of there in in the background of our lives, and and there he stands ready to go along with and, and even applaud whatever decisions we feel led to make at the moment, regardless of how ill-conceived or out of line they are with the teachings of the scriptures. We just, in Glennon Doyle's words, take God with us wherever we go. There's two metaphors that I've heard for describing this approach to a relationship with God. One is that God is sort of like a cheerleader. If you ever watch a sporting event, you will notice that the incredible thing about cheerleaders is that they are always on your side, no matter what. Uh, If you've ever seen uh, specific videos online of cheerleaders cheering right after their own team fumbles, 
you know even more so that this is how cheerleaders function. Cheerleaders are perpetual optimists, at least while they're on the field, right? They're always going to be excited for you. They're always going to be cheering you on, and they're going to applaud most anything that you choose to do. Some people, from what I've seen, tend to think about God a little bit like that. He's just perpetually cheering us on. He just believes in us. And no matter what decision we make, and no matter how poorly conceived that decision was, he's just there to applaud you in it. Now for clarity, the scriptures do say that God is for us as followers of Jesus. That's the language that it uses. God is for us. But by that, the scriptures do not mean that he just blindly cosigns anything that we choose to do. They mean that he is for our ultimate good as we choose to follow him. That's actually different than God as cheerleader. The other metaphor I've heard used is the God as a consultant metaphor. So if you've ever worked for a company that has hired an outside consultant of some sort, you know the way that this works. So the consultant gets access to the company and company culture and company inner workings. And then the expectation is that this consultant will speak into things that the company does and give input on how to improve things, how to make things better as a result. But usually the thing about hiring a consultant for your company is that the company is under no actual obligation to listen to anything that the consultant says, anything that they recommended at all. They can ignore everything that the consultant says if they want to. It would be a waste of money, but they can do it, right? Some people, I think, treat God a little bit like that. He's a consultant. So he, he's worth seeking out when you feel like you need wisdom or advice or thoughts on how to improve things in your life, but you're under no obligation to listen to anything that he says at the end of the day, to implement any of the feedback that he has given you. He's just one of many advisory resources available to you at any given moment. And truth be told, there are probably other apt metaphors out there that we could use. There's God is cheerleader, God is consultant, God is life coach, God is therapist, God is enabler, God is Santa, so he just shows up once a year with a big bag of presents to deliver to you and then mostly checks out for the rest of the year. There's all kinds of metaphors out there, but here's the problem with all of these metaphors, all of these perceptions of God. None of them are accurate at least not on their own, right? None of them give us a, a full, accurate picture of who God actually is. All of them are sort of images conjured up from our imagination and preferences about what God is like, rather than from the description of God that we find in the scriptures. And that, in many ways, is what the second commandment cautions us against. So let's read this commandment in its entirety, and then we'll spend some time unpacking what the details of it actually mean. So this is Deuteronomy chapter 5, again starting in verse 8. God says through Moses, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, 
punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So I would guess that for a lot of us, upon reading those verses, the latter half of the passage really stands out to us. The part about God punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. That part probably puzzles or maybe even bothers some of us when we read it. And we're going to work our way to that part of the passage and clarifying what it does and doesn't mean. But before we get there, I just want to make sure that we understand the purpose of this commandment as a whole, what it's actually alluding to and talking about, and then we'll circle back and make sure we're correctly understanding the more confusing parts of it. Make sense? So we'll start with just what the commandment means as a whole. Okay, so upon first read, this commandment sounds fairly similar to the first commandment, the one that we talked about last week. So last week we read, you shall have no other gods before me. This week, we read, you shall not make for yourself any images. And there is some overlap between the first and second commandment, to be sure. But here's how I would describe the difference. And this actually isn't original to me at all. I borrowed it from a book on the Ten Commandments by a guy named Kevin DeYoung. It's a really good book. He draws the distinction between the first and second commandments like this. He says, if the first commandment, the one we covered last week, is against worshiping the wrong gods, then the second commandment, this week's, is against worshiping the right God in the wrong way. If last week's commandment was against worshiping the wrong gods, this week's is about worshiping the right God in the wrong way and prohibiting against that. So, so this commandment that we just read is about interacting with God in the way that we want rather than in the way he wants. It's about worshiping God as we want him to be, rather than as he is. We could say it's about worshiping a projection in our minds of God, rather than the God revealed to us in the scriptures. That's what this commandment is all about. Now, in ancient Israel, doing that, worshiping God in the wrong way, took the form of what the passage essentially says. People would carve and fashion what they called idols, small physical objects that were meant to be stand-ins for the gods that they worshiped. So this is the way most ancient cultures operated at the time. They would focus their attention and their imagination on these carved images as they worshiped. And since the Israelites, God's people, came from one of these ancient cultures in Egypt, many of them might have assumed that they should also do that with the God of the Bible. They would have assumed that they should carve and create a physical representation of God to be the object of their worship. But God says in the second commandment to Israel, I don't want you to do that with me. That's not the way that you worship me. You do not need to create or fashion idols, representations of who I am. Now, here's the thing. In our day and age, I highly doubt that most of us in this room have a carved image of God that we focus our worship on when we interact with God, at least not here in the States. So maybe you do. Uh, maybe in your room at home, you have like your bobblehead LeBron and your bobblehead Joe Milton 
and then a bobblehead Jesus right next to it. And when you pray, you focus all your attention and imagination on bobblehead Jesus as you pray. And if you do that, you can consider this commandment your official invitation to stop doing that. Uh, but chances are, it doesn't exactly take that form for the majority of us today, at least not in Western cultures. But at the same time, I would just about guarantee you that at one point or another, you have found yourself worshiping God as you wanted him to be rather than as he is. I mean, I certainly have. I would just about guarantee you that we, would all, that we have all at some point been guilty of worshiping a projection of God that we came up with rather than the God revealed to us clearly in the scriptures that we've interacted with God primarily as a cheerleader or as a consultant or as a therapist or as a life coach or as something else along those lines. We've interacted with him as, as some sort of caricatured image of God rather than who he is. And when we do that, I would argue that at least two things happen as a result. It limits God's presence in our lives and it shortchanges us from knowing and worshiping the real God. And if we've ever found ourselves in that situation at all, I think the second commandment is actually very, very relevant to us today. Because whether you realize it or not, what you believe about God is perhaps the most important thing about you. If for no other reason than this, what you believe about God shapes the type of person that you become. Here's how the late theologian J.I. Packer once put it in one of his books. He said, we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. Were we able to extract from any man a complete answer to the question, what comes to mind when you think about God? We might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. Our future, who we become as human beings, is derived largely from who we believe God to be. Here's the way I've heard it said by some other folks. We become like what we behold. We become like what we behold, which means there are few things in the world, both theologically and practically, than what we currently think about God. To list out just a couple of examples. If God to you is primarily an angry, hyper-conservative fundamentalist. He's an angry deity in the sky who goes around yelling at all the people not currently living the right way. That will turn you into a certain type of person as a result of believing that. It will cause you to interact with the world around you, people around you, in a certain way as a result. On the other hand, if, if you believe God is a West Coast, hyper-educated, uber-tolerant progressive, that too will turn you into a certain type of person as a result. If you think of God, as, as we mentioned earlier, as a type of a life coach, someone who's just there to support you and sign off on all of your choices at all times, to remind you to be kinder to yourself, that will shape you into a certain type of person as a result as well. In a fantastic book called God Has a Name, author John Mark Comer puts it this way. I think this is so enlightening. He says, the ISIS terrorists beheading the infidel, 
the prosperity gospel celebrity preacher getting out of his Hummer after late night drinks with Kanye West. That one didn't age well, I don't think. The Westboro Baptist picket outside of a military funeral screaming, God hates, not going to say that word. The Hindu sacrificing a goat to Shiva, the African witch doctor sacrificing a little boy, the U.S. Army sniper praying to God before he takes the shot, the peace activist risking her neck to stop another war because she believes in Jesus' teachings on enemy love, the gay singer who stands up at the Grammys and says thank you to God for his song about a one-night stand, the Catholic nun giving up a normal life to live in poverty and work for social change. Notice this next part. All of these men and women do what they do because of what they believe about God. What you believe about God is massively important. Who you perceive God to be functionally is massively important. So it becomes essential then for followers of Jesus to ensure that the picture we have in our heads of who God is, is the right picture. Or, or to ensure that we're at least moving towards a, a more correct picture over time. To, to ensure that our picture of God is more formed by the scriptures, who God reveals himself to be, than it is formed by our own preferences and imaginations and perceptions. Or formed by the culture around us and the things that they value. Hence, why the second commandment is so very important for us to understand and for us to obey. Put another way, there are massive consequences for who you believe God to be in your mind, both for getting it right and for getting it wrong. And that, I would argue, is actually what the second half of the commandment is all about when we read it. So that odd part that we mentioned earlier about future generations and the impact on them. So let's just spend some time breaking down that part of the commandment. God says first in Deuteronomy chapter five, the passage that we just read, quote, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. So we hear that line as modern individualistic Americans and we think probably inherently, just as a knee jerk reaction, we think that doesn't seem fair. That doesn't seem fair for that to be the way that God works, for him to punish the children for the sins of the parents. That doesn't feel just to us from our worldview. So what is this part of the text saying exactly? Is God really saying that future generations will suffer simply because their ancestors once upon a time sinned? My answer to that question would be no and also yes. Let me explain. The answer is no in the sense that when you choose to follow Jesus, you are not going to get to heaven and hear God say, well, you did pretty good, but your granddad, he's a real piece of work. I've got beef with your grandmother, and because of that, your access to heaven has been revoked. I'm very sorry. You should have paid more attention to the family that you were born into. That's not how it's gonna work. That's not what this commandment is saying. 
God actually makes it clear elsewhere in this book and other books of the Bible that the bulk of a punishment for a person's sins will be on them and not on their descendants. So take a look with me, for example, at this from Ezekiel 18. Put it on the screen. It says, the one who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. The righteousness of the righteous will be credited to them, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against them. So in one sense, no. Future generations will not be held accountable or liable for the sins of their ancestors. That's not how it works. But in a different sense, I would say that there are absolutely consequences for future generations of their parents and their grandparents and great-grandparents' sins. So I want you to think about a couple of hypothetical scenarios with me. Let's say that your granddad was a really tough man. And I don't mean tough as in he suffered well through the difficulties of life. I mean tough as in he was a very difficult person to be around. He expected a lot from everyone, arguably expected too much from everyone, especially from his own family. Let's say that he was very quick to anger and to jump down the throat of anyone who crossed him or even anyone who he perceived to be crossing him at the time. And let's say that that led to various types of verbal and emotional, maybe even physical abuse towards members of his own family. Let's say that's the case. Okay, if that's the case with him, with your granddad, I would imagine that is going to have a significant impact on his kids, right? Either they're gonna live in a constant state of fear and anxiety about accidentally crossing their dad, or they're gonna grow up thinking that that's how a man should behave, that that's normal, and, and emulating that behavior or pursuing romantic relationships with men who embody that behavior. And any of that is going to impact their kids' lives in return. That's probably gonna impact how those kids treat their kids and so on and so forth down the line. There are absolutely negative consequences of one generation's sins on following generations. I'll give you another example. Let's say that your mom or your grandma grew up thinking that her physical appearance was the most important thing about a woman. Like that's all that mattered. She at some point decided that the most important things in life were a person's weight and the clothing that they wore and the way that they presented themselves in public. That's what she believed or currently believes. And let's say that in a number of different ways, implicit or explicit, she ends up communicating those beliefs, those convictions about life to you, her son or her daughter, her grandson or granddaughter. Chances are that is going to have an impact on how those future generations think about themselves, right? That's going to influence how they approach life how they view other people, how they interact with other people, what they think is most important to spend time and effort and money and resources on. And I would imagine in some way, it's going to impact the generation after that too, either in the same way, in the same vein, or perhaps as a knee-jerk, unhealthy pendulum swing reaction to what she believed. Now, 
I do think it's very important that we realize none of that happening is necessarily God punishing you for your parents' sins. But at the same time, it absolutely should be sobering to us especially those of us that have kids or want to have kids one day. And to be honest, even if you don't want to have kids ever, it should be sobering to you for this simple reason. Our sin never impacts just us. Our sin never impacts just us. There is always collateral damage for us choosing things other than God, to us choosing to perceive of God in incorrect ways. That impacts other people around us. Our sin always impacts those around us, especially those closest to us, whether we realize that it's happening or not. So while this passage may not be saying what it appears to say, it's sort of a surface level reading, I think it absolutely contains a powerful word of caution for us. The caution being that there are always consequences for our sin, for us and for others around us, and more specifically for our topic this morning, There are consequences for forming incorrect pictures in our minds of who God is and the types of things that he cares most about. All of that has an impact on us and on future generations after us. But I'll also mention this, don't miss the rest of the sentence in the passage for two reasons. First, it's actually really important what he says next to understand the meaning. That same sentence, it says that God punishes, quote, the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. That's very important context. God is not just talking about visiting the sin of the parents on the children in general for every single human being on earth, Christian or not. He's talking about doing that for both parents and children that hate him in the language of the passage. People that reject God and choose to run after other things instead of God. God is saying for those people, there are often long-lasting, sometimes even generational consequences to their sin. But also, whatever you do, don't miss the contrast in the next part of the passage. God says all of that about the impact of sin on future generations, but then he says this, but showing love. Remember, this is talking about who God is. But showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So notice the contrast in the passage between someone's sin impacting three or four generations and God's love and compassion impacting a thousand generations. Do you hear the difference there, the contrast between them? Notice that while God does judge, while he does show wrath, while he does respond swiftly to injustice and sin, still, according to the scriptures, that's not who he is. God has wrath, yes, but God is love. And you could even argue that his wrath is an outworking of his perfect love. God will punish, he will allow consequences of sin, but he longs to show compassion. He longs to extend his mercy and his grace towards all who know and follow him. That is the essence of who God is, love. Not love as we define it, but love as he defines it, true love. First John tells us that God is love which brings us back to the second commandment as a whole. 
understanding who God actually is. If we are gonna understand why this stuff matters, we have to understand who God actually is. This second commandment, I would argue, is God saying, in essence, I want you to worship me, not as you imagine me to be, not as you wish that I was, but as I really am. That's the heart of the second commandment. And you know, it's interesting, that very idea, worshiping God for who he truly is, is actually embedded in the very language of this passage. It's actually right smack in the middle of the commandment. It's just easy for you to miss if you don't know what you're looking for. So I'll show you what I mean. The passage says this in verse nine of Deuteronomy chapter five. It says, you shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God. And it goes on from there. I'll give you a quick Bible reading tip. Anytime you read the word Lord in your Bible, and it's formatted in uppercase like that, in that passage, that is telling us that the author has actually used God's proper name. Did you know God has a proper name? I don't know that I knew this until well into my journey of following Jesus, so no shame if you don't. God has a proper name, and believe it or not, it's not God. God in the ancient world was actually not a very descriptive word at all. We mentioned this last week in Eric's teaching, but everybody back then had gods. If you told someone back in the day that you worshiped God, people would respond no matter what their background was with cool, me too, which God do you worship? Gods were everywhere, at least people thought that they were. Gods were a dime a dozen in the ancient world, which is why at a very key moment in Israel's history, God actually gives Moses his proper name. He tells Moses the essence of who he is. And then later, that is relayed to God's people as a whole. He tells his people not just that he is God, but specifically what kind of God he is. He tells them that he goes by the name Yahweh. Yahweh, that's God's proper name. And I won't walk you through all the quasi-technical details, but Yahweh in the original language means something like, I am who I am. I am who I am. It means I, I will be who I will be. Or if we wanted to expand it a little bit, we could put it like this, I will show myself to be who you've always known me to be. Now, maybe to you, if you're brand new to this whole thing, maybe that sounds somewhat redundant as a name or somewhat ambiguous. Maybe it sounds to you like it doesn't actually provide very much additional information in terms of who God is or what he's like. But before you assume that, I, I want you to just try to put yourself in the story of the Bible for a moment. As Eric mentioned last week, Israel had just been rescued out of a horrendous situation in Egypt. They were enslaved by a brutal king known as Pharaoh. And right when things seemed like they could not get any worse for God's people in Egypt, God brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. That's the language that the Bible uses. So, so Pharaoh there in Egypt at the time, who, who claimed to be a god himself, he was changing his mind by the day on whether or not he would let the Israelites leave Egypt or not. One day he said he would, the next day he would change his mind and keep them there, then he would change his mind again and again and again. But right at the moment when God's people needed it most, 
God rescued them out. And so knowing that, once again, I want you to put yourself in the story. You're an ancient Israelite. You've been rescued out of something horrific that your ancestors have been stuck in for generation upon generation. But to be honest, you're wandering through the desert right now after being delivered out of Egypt and things don't seem so great at the moment either. You're wandering around, you're a bit lost in terms of where you're going. You think that maybe your leaders are lost too and they're just not telling you that they're lost. You got the same thing to eat every single day. It's this thing called manna from the sky. And you're kind of wondering if this God who brought you out of Egypt, maybe he's the type of God that changes his mind like Pharaoh does. Maybe he's actually not sure either. You're wondering if this God that you worship now, if this God even has a plan for you or your family or your people. And if he does have a plan, you're kind of wondering if it's even a good plan. And sometimes you're just not sure about any of that. And in the midst of one of these moments of doubt and uncertainty about God, Moses comes down from the mountain where he's been meeting with God. And he says to you, here's what God told us to call him, Yahweh. He said he is who he is. He will be who he said he will be. He will continue to be who we've always known him to be, a rescuer, a deliverer, a savior. Do you think if you're in that situation and Moses says that to you, do you think maybe, just maybe, that could put a bit of strength back in your bones in that moment? I think it certainly could. But even if you're not so sure about that, let me, let me try to bring it down one more level to you and me and our lives today. Let's say you're a little bit like me, which means that most days you've got a genuine desire to follow Jesus. You like that idea, you're on board with it, but also there are quite a few moments, may, maybe more of them than you'd like to admit, where you're not completely sure where you look at the circumstances in your life, you look at the things that you have, the things that you don't have, you think about where you thought you'd be at this point in your life, and then you, what you thought your life would look like, and then you look at what is right now, and the difference between those two things. You take a survey of all of that stuff in your life, and if you're completely honest, you think to yourself, maybe you don't say it out loud, because it doesn't feel like an acceptable thought to have in church, but you think to yourself internally, I don't know about this. Does it really work like God said it would work? Does stuff work out the way that he said it would work out? And you're just not sure. And in those vulnerable moments, you ask consciously or subconsciously, is God really who he says that he is? Is God the type of God that I've been believing him to be? If you have been following Jesus very long and you're honest with yourself, I would just about bet that you have asked a version of that question before. And I believe with everything in me that in those moments, if you will listen, I believe God is speaking back to you. I am Yahweh. I am who I am. I will be who I said I will be. I will continue to be who I've always, 
always, always been. Yahweh. That's who our God is. And so I think what God is saying here in the second commandment in the list, I believe, is an invitation of sorts. The invitation sounds something like this. Don't worship who you want me to be. Don't worship me as you would like for me to be. Don't worship a projection of yourself who you think is me. Worship me as I really am. So I want everybody to look right at me for a second because I think we all need to hear this, especially me. The God of the Bible is so much better than who you want him to be. He's so much better. He's so much better than who your flesh wants him to be in the moment. The God of the Bible is so much better than anything that you or I could think up. He's so much kinder than any picture we have in our minds of what kindness is. He's so much better than any picture we have in our minds of what good is. And he wants, what he wants to do with your life is so much better than what you could ever want out of your life. You want some honesty for a second? There have been so many times in my life where I thought I knew exactly what my life would turn out like, where I thought I knew exactly what I wanted my life to turn out like. And every single time God has come along and he's blown the whole thing up. And you know what? Every single time it has been better than what I could have thought of. There are so many times in my life where I thought I knew exactly who City Church was gonna be, where I thought I knew exactly who City Church was gonna be in a year, two years, five years, 10 years, and every single time that I thought I knew, God has come along and he has blown it up. One happened this past week. Every single time, God has come along and he has blown the whole thing up, and you know what? Every single time, it's been better. Every single time, it has been better than what I could have possibly wanted out of those things. Every single time. Now, I certainly don't mean by that that it's been easier than what I wanted it to be. I certainly don't mean it's been more comfortable than what I wanted it to be. I don't mean it's been more ideal or more enjoyable or more convenient. I don't think God promises us any of those things, at least not in the Bible I'm reading. But here's what he does promise us. He promises that a life lived with him is better than a life lived without him. A life lived walking daily by the power of his spirit is better than a life without all of that. The real God is worth more than 1,000 faulty projections that we have of God in our mind. And because he loves us, he is not going to let us settle for a conjured up image of himself when only the real God will do. And that, in essence, is why God sent Jesus. John chapter one, Jesus arrives on the scene for the first time. The gospel writer John describes that moment in the story like this. He says this, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. 
Most theologians would say that that's the New Testament writer, John, referencing the very essence of who God is from the Old Testament. Yahweh, showing love to a thousand generations of those who love and keep my commandments, full of grace and truth. John is saying that that God, the God that brought Israel out of Egypt, the God who makes his presence known to them in the midst of the wilderness, the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, is the God who extends his hand for a relationship with you and I. Through his son, Jesus. So for followers of Jesus, I would argue that there are a few things we need if we are gonna operate out of a correct understanding of who God is. We're gonna need regular time in the scriptures where we can be reminded of precisely who God reveals himself to be there and what he's like in those pages. We're gonna need spirit-filled community around us, other followers of Jesus who we've given the freedom to tell us when we are operating out of a false understanding of who God is. People who can say, hey, I don't, that thing you just said, I don't think that's true, and because I care about you, I'm not gonna let you keep believing that that's true. We need people like that. But underneath all of it, and the purpose of all of it, we need a vision of Jesus, the glory of the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We need a vision of Jesus. Because if we want to know what God is like, God is like Jesus. We have more than enough in these pages to discover what Jesus was like. And if we can discover that over time, we will operate with a fuller understanding, a more accurate understanding of who God is as well. So every single week as a community of followers of Jesus, we participate in one simple and profound act to reset ourselves on this vision of Jesus. We go to the tables throughout this room, we take of the bread and the cup. Those two things for us are, are representative of the body and the blood of Jesus, which was shed for us on the cross to demonstrate to us who God actually is, what he's really like. The cross is the clearest demonstration of all of that, of who God is and what he's like. So if you're a follower of Jesus in the room, you're invited to participate with us in that act. Let's pray.